FX Medicine and the Naturepreneur Experience 2020 are proud to present the inaugural X Factor Awards. Join us on the 15th of February at QT Hotel on the Gold Coast as we celebrate the incredible diversity and inspirational people who make up our community. The X Factor Awards will recognise leadership in eight distinct categories and nominations are now open. For more information, click on events under the community tab at fxmedicine.com.au. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us in the studio today is Dr Sarah Howard. Sarah first studied chiropractic science at Macquarie University before transferring to the Bachelor of Veterinary Science at Sydney Uni, graduating in 2012. Because of her long-standing passion for nutrition, Sarah then completed postgraduate studies in equine behaviour and nutrition at Charles Sturt Uni. After that, Sarah honed her clinical skills in both rural and urban practice for five years before joining Blackmores, where she's now the technical services veterinarian for Poor. Welcome to FX Medicine, Sarah. How are you? I'm really well, thank you, Andrew. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Now, this is something that greatly interests me. Today, we're going to be talking about integrative veterinary medicine. Mm -hmm. And it's something that, you know, years ago, I would never even contemplated. I see its importance in not not just practice but research because do you get a placebo <laughs> response? I guess you do. But it's, it's um, I guess, harder to get a placebo response in pets because they really don't care how you feel about it. They just want relief if they've got pain. That's right. I guess it depends on what you're measuring. Um, in a lot of ways it's actually harder to see a good response in a study unless you're using a, an objective measure. So, um, for example, if you're looking at the effectiveness of something for osteoarthritis, be that a drug or a supplement, um, you can't really ask the dog whether it hurts. No. So you either rely on subjective measures, so be that what the owners are seeing at home or what the vets are seeing in their consultation or their clinical assessment, um, or you rely on there's only a couple of objective measures that you can use for, for osteoarthritis or for joint pain, um, one of them being ground plate technology, so looking at how much pressure the dog will put through ah. each limb yep. on a on a plate. Yep. Um, so in a lot of ways, it's actually more difficult to establish accurate results because they can't talk. Yeah, so that's exactly right. a lot right. of it is observational, which sometimes can mean weaker results and weaker evidence. But it's like it, it, it has its own conundrums there because they can't say ow mm. and they can't say ah. You know, they can't tell you other than behaviours like I'm wagging tail, my tail, I'm happy now, or, you know, if, I, if for instance, you've done equine stuff, so I'm a horse, I'll nudge you. Mm. Um, they can't tell you that they've had relief. Yeah. It must be poignantly frustrating. <laughs> Very much so. And I think that I, I, I often, I've got um, friends who have children who aren't sort of at the stage where they can talk yet. And hearing their frustration of knowing whether their child is finding relief from certain medications or um, certain treatments that they're undergoing, I find very similar 
to the frustrations I had yeah. as a clinician. So I think I think you could almost relate pedi- pediatrics mm. to vet to vets yeah. in that sense. Um, and a lot of it is behaviour based, and there's God, there's just so much scope when you're looking at at veterinary behaviour, um, and so much nuances there as well. And a lot of the time, clinicians might not be aware of certain behaviours and owners might not be aware of what certain behaviours mean um, because that, that's probably another four or five years of study mm. in, on it, in and of itself. And you've indeed studied this in the, in the horses. So I've, I, yeah, wa- I, I want to just backtrack though. Take us back to the beginning. Where did this love of integrative veterinary science, the passion for integrative nutrition and veterinary care, where did that spark? Where did it all begin? Well, it probably began... Um, from my interest in terms of human health and nutrition. And I think with a lot of people, it comes from personal experiences with different conditions and and seeing the benefits of nutritional approaches and and different natural supplements for my own health. Um, I... I guess I've had a few negative experiences with conventional medicine for myself and I have had equal frustrations when I was working as a conventional vet in practice um, with my patients as well. And since leaving practice, I have really dived headfirst into the world of integrative veterinary medicine, which perhaps is a little annoying because it would have been nice to actually learn that this world existed while I was still in practice um, because it's certainly something that I would have pursued back then and I'm not saying I won't in the future. Mm. Um, But seeing, I guess... I, I never really knew that all of the advances that are made in human integrative medicine can be equally transferred over to pets um, with the same benefits. When you say equally, we're going to delve into that because there are <laughs> some nuances in how um, how different compounds work on the, and their safety within different animals. We know Definitely. this with drugs yeah. um, where certain drugs that are quite safe, I'm going to use that in quotation marks, but for human use are... Uh, Absolutely toxic (laughs) for various pets and they change. Let's start off. Integrative veterinary care. Mm -hmm. Where did that begin? Where's the history of integrative veterinary care? So I don't know exactly when it began, but when it became um, more of a recognised field, Mm. I believe was early 80s, um, coming from a group in America. So the group is actually called now the American Association of Holistic Veterinary Medicine, um, and that was established in the early 80s by a group of very passionate clinicians um, who were well-versed in um, nutrition and natural supplementation and integrative medicine um, and started using those techniques in pets and seeing benefits. And they wanted to establish a community of like-minded vets to try and progress this field more into the mainstream. So that's where I believe that it it sort of became um, more recognised and it's really grown since then. So there's a few different associations and groups and journals now that exist. Mm. However, it's still very much in its infancy in comparison to the human integrative oh, sure. medicine Yeah, yeah, world. sure. Well, but even then, you know, there's there's a lot of conjecture and, you know, browbeating that you know, human nutrition supplementation and that sort of thing doesn't work and you get a negative study because they cherry-picked either research or looked at a stupid dose or something like that. So this is the interesting thing with people who do it compared to people who look at it. 
Yes. Um, what I find interesting, though, is when you look at agribusiness, um, let's take dairy. Uh, they have a formula and it's like a set formula. If you wanted to be a successful dairy farmer in, in Australia, you have to use supplemental feed to the tune of $11 a day, mm. full stop. Mm. And if you want to use $10.50, it ain't going to work. Mm. I think... Um Certainly, I, I'm more familiar with the companion animal side of things, but certainly if you're looking at agriculture and the use of supplementation in, say, dairy cows mm. or or lambs or feedlot meat cattle, um, it's all about the money at the end mm. of the day. So it's it's all about the value and it's all about the maximising the nutrition for people. So it's actually driven by people rather than the animals themselves, the welfare of the animals themselves. Yeah but, yeah, but as you say, it's the productivity from a monetary perspective and yet we have economies that, you know, we have healthcare costs that are burgeoning because we've got diabetes. We've got women who cannot work because of endometriosis. Mm. And it's, it's, to me it's ridiculous. Mm. I think we both have different frustrations, obviously. <laughs> 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 yeah, no, it's um, certainly, and I... I've spent a lot of my life in the equine industry, so um, from pony club from the age of six and mm. horses are very much in my blood, which is why I actually became a vet in the first place. Yeah. Um, I've, I've never been very involved in the racing industry, but certainly in the performance horse industry, um, it was completely normal to give our horses probably four or five supplements every day mm. in their feed. Yep. And it's actually very common. Um, I, I would... I would find it hard to even find any horse owner who is not giving at least one supplement. I thought it was very interesting that way back we used to have, where I used to work in a pharmacy, we used to have horse trainers coming in to procure creatine, mm -hmm. which back then was only used for human nutrition as I knew it then. Mm -hmm. And it was extraordinarily expensive. So we used to procure this raw material um, without the middleman. And we used to have um, this sort of mini business from all these um, horse trainers yeah. using creatine performance. for yeah. performance. So yeah. they knew about it back then. Yeah, um, It was the people who wanted the cutting edge mm. who wanted it back then. Now it's available to everybody who has so a pet. So I wonder if back then it was anecdotal or clinical um, literature and evidence that was backing it because a lot of the time, and this is the struggle that we have in integrated veterinary medicine, is the lack of solid research. Um, this just it really frustrates me. Um, a part of my role is product development and so I spend many hours scaling the literature, mm. finding evidence for different ingredients. And I, f I feel rather jealous of people who work in human product development because I think, gosh, you must have such an easier time finding evidence for these ingredients. We we have hard enough time having um, high-level research papers written for pets as it is yeah. because of very stringent ethics issues and um, they're getting more and more strict every year. Um, but yeah, we we have a we have a hard enough time getting pharma, pharmacological research papers across, let alone natural supplements and herbal ingredients and um, nutrition papers written. They're very few and far between, and the problem with the veterinary industry in the mainstream. I'm not talking about the integrative vets at the moment, but mainstream vets, conventional vets, is um, and rightly so. They they need to see the the solid, hard, high quality, gold standard 
research for something before they utilise it. And if that doesn't exist, then quite often they will be very dismissive um, of whatever product or ingredient or supplement or herb that they're looking at. But it's also very specific to each species, isn't it? For instance, very, yeah. um, pharmacologically, you can have, let's take NSAIDs, right? So in, Austra- in humans, you have the, the class of NSAID drugs or non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, and there are many, mm-hmm. um, right from the ibuprofen through the meloxicams, um, all sorts of um, NSAID drugs, and yet they are species-specific when we're talking about veterinary To stuff. an extent, to an extent. So if you're looking at um, a difference between dogs and cats, there's quite often quite a big difference. So they, they do share quite a lot of drugs, in particular NSAIDs, mm. but dogs can tolerate paracetamol. For cats, it's fatal. Right. It's completely toxic. For right. Them. So NSAIDs are virtually the same. So the Veter- ibuprofen is toxic for cats veterinary, as well. Veterinary NSAIDs like meloxicam um, and oh, there's a whole there's a whole variety of mm. different COX-2 inhibitors and things like that. Um, they usually can be used fairly equally between the species. Not all of them. Cats cats um, have a far far less um, drugs that they can use. Yeah. They're, they're much more sensitive to different toxicities. Um, but if you're looking at some human NSAIDs, um, yeah, so if you're looking at paracetamol, can be used in dogs. Not commonly, though, because right. we do have quite a lot of canine-specific NSAIDs that you would prefer to use. Yep. But for cats, it's completely fatal. Right. Yeah. So that's just a, a perfect example of the huge difference in their metabolism. And also something that, that struck me as odd was that when we're looking at human studies on a compound, be it natural or pharmacological, the research starts with cells, you know, proof of concept, and then they go. Rodents. Rats, yeah. you know, r- rodents, you're right. Um, and then they might use dogs yeah. and then primates. Yeah. So can't they just take out the dog part and go, there you go, it's suitable for dogs? Yeah, it would be nice. So it's... It's um, the hard thing is is that a lot of those studies these days don't get the ethics approval. So they're kind of older studies back in. I think the even in the early two thousands, we were still doing quite a lot of studies that um, were basically the, the animals were unfortunately euthanized at the end of the study. Mm-hmm. And these days, it's very hard to get ethics approval for doing those sort of papers. So I think that there there is there is quite a lot of evidence that exists for certain things, but certainly for um, for newer technologies or for herbs that are only coming um, into the veterinary world now, it's very difficult to get those high-quality randomised controlled trials. Oh, for sure. Yeah. It's a trial to get them for humans. Um, yeah. But, but I guess, as we've noted before, that we, where vets don't deal with one species... No. Doctors deal with one species. Yeah. Um, vets deal with multitude of species. Mm-hmm. So to get the evidence for not one species but a multitude of species, that must be a real trial. Well, yeah. I mean, if you're talking about companion animals, most of the papers are published in dogs and horses. Yeah. I think cats are very few, mm. very few. Because I think the challenges with cats is their sensitivity to certain things. Um, the ethics is, is one thing. The sensitivity to different ingredients is another. Um, and also cats are harder to give anything to. Dogs are Love, much... for instance. 
<laughs> Harder to get love from cats too. I'm not actually a cat person, so I'm sorry if I offend people a cat. who, cats who love cats. <laughs> um, but in terms of giving, whether it be a drug or a natural supplement to a dog or a horse, yep. so much easier. Right. But giving things to a cat is as any cat owner would know, a real challenge and can be almost life-threatening sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> so the drive for um, getting that research funded is always going to be stronger in horses and dogs compared to cats. And the, as I understand it, the appropriate regulatory body for veterinary medicine. The APVMA, yeah. Right, APVMA. Yep, so it's the Australian Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority. So we share... The regulatory body is shared between um, all agriculture pesticides as well. That's really interesting. Mm. So that's an Australian pinnacle body. Mm-hmm. What's the world sister bodies? Are they, are they intertwined? Like, um, for instance, you know, FDA versus TGA in Australian for human, um, MedSafe for New Zealand. They're sort of similar, but they have their own little nuances in how they're set up as a framework. Do you have that when you're looking at overseas medicines or is it pretty, pretty much blanket? Like- Very different in each country. Gotcha. Australia is pretty strict. Um, I believe New Zealand is even stricter. America is pretty relaxed compared. Mm. Um, so there's a lot of there's a lot more natural health supplements on the market in America compared to Australia, and we can't import them over here without going through some really rigorous and strict um, sort of regulation hurdles. Um, so there's a regis- product registration process that needs to go through in Australia if you're um, wanting to obtain a, a product that has therapeutic benefits, and it is. It, is, it takes minimum 24 months for that to occur, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, and that's, that's um, to, to register a product that has ingredients that are already registered. Mm-hmm. To register a new ingredient for use in veterinary medicines, it is, I think the last one was done over 10 years ago. It's nearly, oh. nearly impossible. Wow. Um, it's doable, but again, it comes down to the challenges of getting the ethics approval. You need to prove that that ingredient Evidence is based. safe. Yep. And in so, that species. In that species, at that dose, yep. in that formulation. So it's very challenging. Um, I know some Asian countries have very strict regulatory systems as well for vet, for veterinary medicines. Okay. And veterinary medicines, in, including natural supplements. Yeah. Right, right. So it's very different in each country. Um, and... The APVMA is among one of the stricter bodies, which is challenging. Well, challenging, I, I guess, sort of rightly so, because challenging, as but we've said good, before, yeah. <laughs> we're, 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 because you're dealing with so many sp- different species, it's hard to then say, oh, well, you know, there's evidence for, as, I, as I've read a few months ago, this is in 2018, um, orangutans um, grab a certain leaf and rub it onto their... Um, arthritic joints really? for pain relief. Yeah. What's the leaf? So I can't remember. It's the first. Oh. It's the first use of of nutrition, if you like, as a medicine rather than for deficiency. Like for instance, we know that elephants go into caves to graze the tusks against yes. the the cave walls, but that's for a mineral deficiency. So that's for a, a, a supplementation yeah. um, and ensuring of adequate nutrition. Yeah. This is as a medicine. And do you believe that it's because of their primates' higher level of intelligence, Don't know. that they actually know. We're to dealing do with that. elephants here. <laughs> yeah. Pretty intelligent, you know. Yeah. But but um, that's interesting. You know, I I was it it piqued my interest because it's the first time I've seen 
I've heard of an animal choosing a particular mm. type of leaf specifically for a particular ailment mm. um, rather than, you know, dogs chew grass for worms. You know, See, that, that sort of... Yeah, so that, that's very controversial, the yes, eating grass thing. Yeah, that's right. That's so what I'm I can saying. talk about that if you want. Well, I'd love to, actually. <laughs> Let's delve into it. Okay, so there's a few kind of myths um, around different behaviours that, Let's call. Let's just talk about dogs. Um, so, a lot of people believe that their dogs will eat grass when they're feeling sick to purge whatever is causing them to feel sick. It's pretty controversial, and I think the challenges of really knowing what that behaviour is about is impossible because you can't really ask the dog. <laughs> um, but certainly, behaviourists have done quite a lot of analysis of this certain behaviour, and um, it's actually considered a, a pretty normal behaviour of a dog and something that they would have developed, you know, many, many thousands of years ago when yeah. they lived in the wild. Yep. Um, and I think it reflects their innate um, omno- omnivorous disposition because dogs are omnivores. Um, cats are obligate carnivores, but dogs actually do require some fibre and some carbohydrates and vegetable material right. in their diet. Um, there's other people that say that it may reflect that the dogs are bored and that they're just going to sort of graze on some grass because they're bored, like any boredom eater mm. would would do, um, or that it might reflect a dietary insufficiency. So there you go, um, that sort of innate... Mineral type thing. Yeah. Um, and some do say that maybe the grass is a purgative and that can sort of help to um, eliminate something in their system. But but on the whole, um, it's pretty low. They're, they've done a lot of... Um, kind of reviews of dogs eating grass and it's the minority that will actually use it to vomit or that have it associated with any gastrointestinal upset. Yeah. So um, it's pretty, it's kind of like normal scavenging, um, grazing behaviour that's just in their um, instinct, I guess. Yeah. I mean, our, our dog um, will sometimes, you know, just go and chew a little bit of grass, but whether it's availability, I don't an availability issue. I I can't contest that, but I just think it's interesting that he'll just go and nibble on a few blades yeah. of grass or a couple, hardly enough to supplement a diet. Yeah. But then I also see that he doesn't necessarily use it to vomit. It's no. just like, oh yeah, oh, yeah. what's that? Oh, I don't know. Yeah. Um, what I find funny is, as you say, he'll have a bone sitting there. Um, maybe he's just using this as an aperitif for the bone. <laughs> a palate cleanser. A palate cleanser, yeah. I mean, who knows? But, who knows? But, but I have I, – I, I agree with you that I would doubt that that amount of grass would be a purgative. No, you know, and I like, think a lot of the time um, people will see the dog vomit because they might eat the grass really quickly and inhale quite a lot of air or grass and it irritates the stomach and then they bring it up. Mm. Who knows? And that's, I think, quite a lot of the time we are guessing. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. So it's from our own issues rather than something else. <laughs> we, we've covered some of the issues facing veterinary science with regards to research, that there may not be a pool of research to to jump from. So what can be done? Like mm. how appropriate is it, as I said, given not one species but multiple, how appropriate is it f- to jump from, say, human um, studies. Yeah, on that's a great compounds. question. Um, so it's appropriate in some situations. I think when there is a lack of solid evidence for a certain ingredient, um, let's use an example of, um, say, curcumin. 
Um, so there is some evidence for using curcumin in dogs and it's good evidence, um, but it's still quite sparse. So if a clinician was wanting to trial a curcumin-based product in, say, a dog with osteoarthritis and using it for its anti-inflammatory benefits for the dog's joints, um, but wanted to see the evidence, then using using human literature is an option, um, but it's really important for the clinician to to acknowledge that they are leaning on the human literature for this yeah. um, certain choice. Yeah. And I think it's also important, and this is what, what a lot of the more discerning integrative vets will do, um, is to lean on their past clinical wisdom or colleagues' clinical wisdom because there is a lot of anecdotal evidence that exists. So if they um, have been a vet for 20 years and they've used curcumin um, in a human product for a long time and they've seen a lot of results and they've had low rates of adverse reactions, then I would I would um, imagine they would feel comfortable continuing um, without, say, a, you know, a randomised controlled trial um, supporting their use of that. Um, however, it's also important to be quite selective with ingredients in terms of their general general safety profile. And you can you can look to human um, safety profiles on different herbs. And if there's a herb that's perhaps not completely safe even in humans, you probably would be very, Peak very interest, careful yeah. Yeah. with using that in in patients without the evidence to support that it's safe. Um, so that's that's an important point. Um, most of the time I, I make it sound like integrative vets sort of ignore the lack of evidence a lot of the time. Most of the time they really try and practice evidence-based medicine, um, absolutely, but there there are there is more of a push from the clients and the pet owners to incorporate natural supplements and ingredients For sure. in patients' treatment regimes. And um, without the, the solid evidence that exists for a lot of these ingredients, um, there is still a body of um, anecdotal evidence and human literature that, that clinicians can lean on. They just have to do so carefully and ensure that the owner is well aware of perhaps the lack of completely solid safety information yeah. that exists. So this, it's, it's a risk-benefit But thing. this is evidence-based medicine. This yeah. is exactly what McMaster University taught. Yeah. You know, the double-blind placebo-controlled randomised trial is not necessarily what you can lean best practice off. Mm. It just depends on how many patients you have. For instance, yeah. rare cancers have NAFL cancers to do a trial on. Yeah. So what they do is they might treat like a thymoma, for instance, a thymus gland tumour. Well, they'll treat that as they would lung cancer because it's similar. Mm. That's the best you got. Mm. Yeah. You know, so... You've got to do with the best with what you've got That's exactly time. right. Yeah. And randomised control trials... Um, Yes, they are the gold standard, but the results can, if you were to do a randomised control trial and then do the exact same trial two months later, you might get slightly different results. So it's 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 always it's never going to be an exact science. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think a lot of the time um, people need to lean on the anecdotal evidence more so than they are um, willing to do in veterinary medicine and and lean on um, experience and intuition and, um, you know, clinical evidence that exists that might not be um, supported by a systematic review or a randomised control trial because I think that we're neglecting a huge amount of, um, of beneficial treatments that are out there for our pets. With oh, one word. I've just picked up you saying a few times, being a human practitioner, if you like, mm -hmm. 
I say patient, I mean a human. You say patient, you mean an yeah. animal. Veterinary patient, Veterinary animal. patient. They're yep. an animal patient. There's an animal patient and their owner is the client. Right. Mm-hmm. I was just interested by that. Yeah. Um, so let's go into some of the conditions because, yeah. you know, there's a whole range of conditions. I would gather, I'm going to guess that there are some like, yeah, heck yeah, we can get really good results and some that are like, look, we can try it and yeah. tell us about this experience stuff. So give yeah, us a few sure. conditions first that are popular. I, I'm, yep. I'm going to, I know one in my brain that owners are frustrated with and they get very poor results with, but you keep going. Okay. Um, so most conditions... I believe there is space for using an integrative approach. Um, whether, as we've been talking about, the evidence exists or not, I think that there's still scope in most conditions. But the most popular and most common um, conditions where integrative medicine has perhaps infiltrated mainstream conventional veterinary medicine, um, probably number one would have to be joint disease, osteoarthritis. Okay. Yep. So it's quite common now to take what's called a multimodal approach to managing cases of osteoarthritis in dogs, cats, horses, whatever species that you're dealing with. And what that means is um, you're looking at the patient from a few different um, aspects. So number one would be um, weight management is probably the most crucial part of managing osteoarthritis, uh, let's say in in a dog or a cat. Horses uh, probably l- less so because horses are um, probably less likely to be obese than a dog or a cat. But dogs and cats, really, it makes sense. If they're carrying an extra 10 kilos, probably for a dog, not so much a cat, they're carrying an extra, say, 20% of their over their ideal body weight, that is just going to amplify the load through their joints. So as soon as you can remove that excess load, they're immediately going to become more comfortable. The less stress that goes through the joints, the less likely the cartilage is to continue breaking down. Mm. Um, and it's a it's a simple fix that's not only going to benefit their joints but also many other aspects of their health. So that would be the first aspect of multimodal management. Um, the second aspect would be looking at lifestyle modifications. Yep. Um, and that would include exercise, um, the type of bedding that they're um, ex- that they have giving the um, owner, giving the client a stern talking to. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> well, all of this is having to convince the client, so that's another challenge which we can talk about. Um, but lifestyle modifications. So when you're talking about exercise, encouraging um, regular gentle exercise. So a lot of people might think, oh, the dog's really sore, I'm not going to exercise it. No, 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 that's just going to make it worse. Mm. So they need to move those joints, um, increase the um, lubrication of the joints, the flow of the joint fluid, um, the blood flow to the joints. Um, Osteoarthritis is an incurable progressive disease. Um, So we're not going to be able to do miracle cures here, but we need to try and maintain the health of those joints as much as possible. Move it or Um, lose it. Exactly. So, and the benefits of exercise also then relate to the first point of weight management. So, if you can get the dog or the cat moving um, in a way where um, they're not putting the joints under load, so I'm talking about swimming, um, if we're looking at dogs, um, gentle walks, I would restrict 
things like jumping, running, twisting, yeah, yeah. things like that. Um, you know, stairs can be difficult, but, you know, a regular walk of half an hour a day on a lead is perfect. Swimming is amazing because you're taking the load off the joints, but they're still going to be burning calories and in- improving muscle strength and condition, which is going to support those joints even further. So once you can get them exercising more, hopefully that will help with the weight control. And as soon as they're losing the weight and they're feeling less load through their joints, they're going to be more inclined to exercise more. So it's a win-win situation there. Um, Bedding, you're wanting soft, supportive bedding. Um, So trampoline beds are great. Um, Anything that they're sort of not lying on cold, hard floors is good. Um, So other lifestyle modifications, you might be trying to restrict um, going up and down stairs, jumping in and out of cars, jumping on and off beds, things like that. That's a big one, jumping Mm. in and out of cars. Yeah. So how do you, apart from like Snoopy, as soon as you start to lift him up, his bum caves in and he goes, "Uh uh-oh, we're going to the vet. (laughs) You know, like he doesn't like being lifted. Yeah. Um, So how do you do that? Particularly elderly owners with that larger dog. Yeah. They can't lift them out of their really car. Hard. What do they do? Yeah, so ramp? you can get little ramps and little yeah. steps and things like that. Right. Yeah, um, absolutely. And the same thing with if you really want the dog to be on your bed at night, put a little step there for them yeah. so or that a, they don't have to jump on and off. Or a lift. No, kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Probably some lifts yeah. exist in some people's homes. Um, so that's really important. Um, and, yeah, so so things like that. Um, There's therapeutic exercises that you can do for for dogs and cats um, involving, you know, joint mobility exercises, massage, things like that. Um, Acupuncture is becoming a lot more mainstream. So there's a few different acupuncture courses you can actually do now to become a qualified veterinary acupuncturist. And there's actually quite a lot of conventional practices which are incorporating acupuncture into their work now, which is really excellent to see. Yeah. Yeah. And acupuncture can just do wonders for lots of different conditions as we as we well know, um, laser therapy, physiotherapy, all of that can be used as well as adjunctive treatments. Um, supplementation. So supplementation is pretty mainstream with osteoarthritis, which is excellent. Supplementation usually involves um, glucosamine and chondroitin um, with the addition of other ingredients to support that. So you might be thinking of MSM, manganese, vitamin C, um, some natural anti-inflammatories, fish oils, green lip muscle and those sorts of things. Um, There are some herbal um, supplements which are becoming a bit more um, popular on the market as well for osteoarthritis, like I mentioned, curcumin and things like that. Um, So that's pretty mainstream. There's also, um, there's these injections that patients are given for osteoarthritis, which is uh, like an injectable nutraceutical. So it's obviously not an oral, it's not a nutraceutical really because it's not oral, but it provides building blocks for building healthy cartilage and reducing Yeah, humans have this as well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So in, so in humans, is it, what is the Um, um, compound? Is it pentasan? Yes, I think it is. (laughs) Pentasan polysulfate. Right. Okay. Okay. So there you go. So that's pretty mainstream in veterinary practice now. Um, and most dogs who are diagnosed, well, and cats, but more so dogs who are diagnosed with arthritis, are uh, started on this regime right. of injections, um, alongside everything else. So there is there is definitely a place also for pharmaceutical um, intervention in a lot of cases of osteoarthritis, and that generally involves the use of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. Um, but to try and delay us having to use those drugs, we try and implement all of the um, other lifestyle modifications, supplementation, weight management, gentle exercise, and um, adjunct therapies before we get there. 
Now, you've mentioned weight management. Mm-hmm. You just said previously that horses tend not to have an obesity issue. Is that right? So that's not exactly true. There are definitely a cohort of ponies um, and some horses who will develop metabolic diseases that result in um, weight issues. So um, ponies in particular can develop equine metabolic syndrome, which is sort of the equivalent of um, your you know, insulin resistance. Yeah, and pre-diabetes. Um, yeah. Um, and there's also um, quite a lot of horses who will end up developing Cushing's disease, oh. where you also see the same sort of issues, so insulin resistance um, and the like. Um, and those um, particularly the equine metabolic syndrome patients will um, have issues with weight management. So it's not that it's not a bigger pro- biggest problem, but it's not as linked to um, joint issues as you might see in the dog and cat world. Yes. Is it true that in the natural environment, animal, animals don't suffer obesity in that they normally regulate their own metabolic needs or is that really part of that life is damn hard in the wild? For I think instance, it's a bit of both. Yeah. For yeah. instance, if a, let's say a lion, if they had a glut of the, you know, the wildebeest migrating through, would they get fatter? I think that they – I've watched a few David Attenborough documentaries. <laughs> Just so <I> a do. few? <laughs> <laughs> Aren't they amazing? Um, but I think that they – it's a bit of a kind of feast and famine mm. type thing. Mm. So if their meals are few and far between, they're going to try and eat and build up fat stores as much as possible. And then they might – Just like bears? Yeah, exactly. So then they might get leaner and leaner and leaner until the next fill – um, and they they say that that's how people in you know caveman era used to be as well. Um, you know when when it was summer and all the fruit was abundant, they'd get fat. Yeah. And then in winter, when everything was kind of sparse and lean, then they'd get really skinny again. And that's sort of how hum, human metabolism really evolved. Yeah. Um, whereas these days, I think for our companion animals um, and horses, um, well, you would consider a horse a companion animal now. Yeah. Um, they are exposed to the same challenges as people, definitely. Yep. So obesity is a real problem, absolutely. So obesity is just overfeeding, but then you... The, and the, under-exercising. And under-exercising. Yeah. But, but the unconscious thing there is that it is food that they're eating. What if it's the wrong food? What if it's a mm. food that they never eat ancestrally? Mm-hmm. Take us through this one. This is a quagmire this of the controversial. Modern, modern food industry. Yeah, so this is really controversial and I, I'm I'm certainly not going to take a strong opinion one way or oh, the other. Oh, why not? <laughs> <laughs> um, there's certainly some clinicians out there, um, particularly some integrative vets, who very much so will treat a dog or a cat as a human integrative clinician or naturopath would treat a human in terms of diet. So they will strip out all of those commercial pet foods, um, strip out most of the kibble and the canned food, and they will basically prescribe a completely homemade, um, nutritionally balanced diet for their patient and see a lot of major improvements in the health of that patient. Um, So it's used very much as a therapeutic um, intervention Mm -hmm. in a lot of cases. The important thing, though, to know is that a lot of home-cooked diets can be um, unbalanced. So it's really important to use some sort of nutritional tool, and there are some really good ones that exist online now, to ensure that the home-cooked diet is balanced. Um, The problem generally lies with uh, um, sort of 
overabundance of certain nutrients and a deficit of other nutrients. The main ones to be concerned about are calcium and phosphorus. Ah. And this is largely because in the wild, um, dogs and cats would have eaten the whole carcass, so including all the bones, Mm. which provide the calcium and phosphorus in the right balance that they need. A lot of the time when very well-meaning owners will make a home-cooked diet for their pet, they will often neglect. So they'll feed meat and veggies and fruit and, and really nutritious foods, but not necessarily giving the whole bones. And so calcium and phosphorus can be an issue. So you do have to balance it and sometimes add in um, those minerals as an addition supplement. But there's issues with pre-cooking the bones from a safety aspect. Oh, definitely no cooked bones. Yeah. Yeah, no cooked bones. They No, cooked bones can't be digested well and they can often splinter and cause major life-threatening issues in the gastrointestinal tract. You only have to bite into into a chicken drumstick to see just how sharp some of those bones can be, the finer bones particularly. And certainly bones, yes, they're the best best thing for keeping teeth clean, but they're not without risk. Okay. It's weighing up risk and benefit. So when you say the right type of bone, is there a right type of bone Again. for dogs versus cats? Yeah, so um, well, cats cats probably are pretty restricted because of the their teeth are pretty small mm. and their mouths are pretty small. So cats, you're more looking at things like chicken necks and chicken wings. Yeah, a softer Always type raw. bone. Yeah, yeah. Um, and dogs do well with chicken necks, chicken wings um, because of the skin component. Some dogs have more of a sensitivity to dietary fat, so you have to be a bit careful there. But chicken oh. necks don't have any skin, so they're a pretty good option for most dogs. Um, and even puppies can tolerate chicken necks yeah. quite well. Chicken um, bones are pretty, yeah. pretty soft. So always raw. Some people will give a whole chicken carcass yeah. without the skin yeah. um, as, a, as a way of giving calcium and phosphorus. So that's kind of a... Okay, but the... without the skin, this is not what happens in nature. They will devour the carcass. Yeah, I know. Where, what's gone wrong? Is it because we've stuffed up with the chicken? Well, I think chicken skin is particularly high in fat. Because we've done it. Well, Humans yeah, I, I don't it. think necessarily dogs and cats are going to be finding chickens in the wild to eat. Yeah. Um, they probably were going to be eating more leaner um, meat and well, leaner meat, animals yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it, it might be something to do with our major um, breeding practices that we have started to unfortunately select for dogs who have more sensitive gastrointestinal yeah, tracts. Yeah. Um, it may be something to do with the environment and the exposure to different chemicals. Uh, I mean, gosh, like people, we're seeing such a, an increase in, in all these sorts of issues and, and allergies and everything. Don't get me started. So when, well, I'm gonna <laughs> I think get, we share I am going to get you started. <laughs> we because, share a lot of the issues. <laughs> well, one of the other huge things is um, skin issues. Oh, absolutely. So yep. you spoke about allergies. Yeah. You know, the skin thing, one would say, oh, fleas. Um, some contact type thing, but indeed it can be dietarily driven. It can be. The most common allergic skin disease seen in dogs is atopic dermatitis um, or eczema. Yep, doggy eczema. And we actually call it, it's funny because in in humans we mainly call it eczema, um, but in dogs we basically call it atopic dermatitis across the board. Um, and that is a sensitivity to um, inhaled or um, inhaled allergens or allergens that contact the skin or are ingested. But really? they're generally allergens that exist in the environment. So the most common ones would be your dust mites, pollens, and grasses. It's it's a really common issue. So atopic dermatitis is pretty much the bread and butter of most veterinary dermatologists, and most general practitioners will see a lot of cases of atopic dermatitis walk in the door. There are veterinary dermatologists. Yeah. 
There are. I have never come across a veterinary dermatologist. Yep. So veterinary dermatologists, so to specialise and become a veterinary dermatologist requires a lot more study and yeah. years. Um, and generally they have to go through a process of an internship and residency and um, sitting some pretty major exams to become a specialised veterinary dermatologist. Hormonally driven skin diseases? Less common, much less common. So again, you've got hypothyroidism can be related to skin condition, skin diseases in dogs. Um, canine Cushing's or hypoadrenocorticism is associated with calcinosis cutis. Do you have that in people? Uh, now there's some homework. I think yes, but let's... <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a perfect example of a um, hormonal-related skin condition, mm. but far less common um, compared to your classic case of atopic dermatitis or allergic skin disease, um, which we can go into, but probably we'll save it for another episode. But that, that again, um, does does require uh, an integrative approach for proper manage- management, including supplementation with fatty acids, improving skin barrier health, um, in combination with different pharmaceutical medications. Um, so we can do allergy desensitization vaccinations, which I know are becoming more popular in human dermatology as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's pretty mainstream in specialist dermatology clinics, um, developing these allergen-specific immunotherapy vaccines for dogs with allergies. Um so that's that's an example of of a skin um, an integrative approach to skin disease. Mm. Um, there's a, there's a few we could talk for ages, but there's a there's a few other um, conditions which really benefit from an integrative approach. Um, a perfect one would be chronic liver disease mm. um, or um, even acute liver disease. Is liver this like a, a non-alcoholic fatty liver disease for for pets? Um, so cirrhosis of the liver um, is seen, but we we yeah. generally see uh, chronic hepatitis um, of unknown cause in dogs. Um, there can be liver toxicities, um, hepatitis secondary to drug therapy or chemotherapy. Um, there's a lot of cases where the, the liver starts to become involved. Um, and um, SAMe and milk thistle are two really commonly used ingredients that have luckily enough, made it into mainstream veterinary medicine. They're, right. they're routinely, I would almost say routinely prescribed in almost all cases of liver disease, which is just so exciting. Mm. Um, so that's that's really nice to see. Um, other conditions um, that we have started seeing where integrative medicine has, has crossed over to conventional medicine is um, behaviour. So um, anxiety, anxiety is just huge. Yeah. So there's um, Do a Do we few... treat the human here? <laughs> you know what? It's interesting because... A calm, a calm owner generally means a calm pet. Yep. And I think this is the same with people with babies as yep. well, yep. is that the calmer the um, parents, often Less the calmer the baby. Mm. Um, and I really do notice, uh, or I did notice when I was in practice, that a calm owner in a consult room generally led to a calm pet, and they definitely can feed off anxiety of their owners. So, so you're right, maybe we should be prescribing <laughs> for the owner as well as the pet. But taking an integrative approach to anxiety is really important. Um, It is definitely multifactorial. So we need to address environmental modifications. Um, Diet is really important as we know the huge link between gut health and brain um, conditions and mm. mental illnesses um, with, uh, you know, that 70% of immune tissue lies in the gut and all the neurotransmitters that are produced in the gut. It's just so important to 
to make that link. Um, so diet's really important for anxiety. Um, and then, of course, we can um, supplement these patients as well. So there's, um, there's less available um, on the market, but um, things like... Um, Hydrolyzed milk protein is available, um, tryptophan supplementation, um, B vitamins and things like that, supportive supplements like that, um, and often used in conjunction with these environmental and behavior modifications, um, appropriate training and interventions, um, and sometimes pharmaceuticals. So we do use fluoxetine um, in pets um, quite commonly um, and not generally long-term, but certainly um, for a few months um, and and that's always recommended in conjunction or should be recommended in, in conjunction with um, appropriate training and, and high-quality um, training modifications. Yeah. Um, now, just another subject. What about these, you know, issues of, say, certain species of dogs eating their own poo? Ah, right, um, yes. <laughs> you know, is some, some people say that it's just a behavioural type thing. It might be an anxiety. Some people say it might be because they're trying to redistribute the microbiota. Some people say it might be because there's a problem with the microbiota. What's going on? Again, a controversial issue. Um, it is believed likely to originate from dogs' behaviour in the wild of trying to keep their den clean. Right. So a lot of the time a dog may eat their poo because it is in their living quarters and they're trying to clean it up. Um, it's pretty gross, but a lot of dogs actually just really like the taste, and so it's pretty rewarding behaviour, and that's why they'll continue to do it. Right. It's pretty hard to eradicate. Um, some people do say you can lace the poo with Tabasco or you can give the dog pineapple and it changes the, the taste of the poo and tries to deter them. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know if it's, if it's them trying to ingest feces to try and alter their microbiome. I, I think that's probably a recent research paper that that is due to be written in the future. <laughs> I know I know this is rank. I get it. I, I know it. But sometimes I'm taking Snoop for a walk and he will drop one. And when I go to pick it up with the bag, there is a distinct smell of coffee. And I, I like I've got to isolate what chemical it is in coffee that is in mm. like a skatole or something like that. And varies um, so much depending on what they've eaten as well. For sure. Yeah. 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 So um, talking about um, trying to alter their microbiome, fecal transplants are being done. Uh, really? Quite commonly now in veterinary practice. Is this with and diseased it, dogs like um, ulcerative colitis and Crohn's? Or Yeah. So um, we don't really label inflammatory bowel diseases as ulcerative colitis or Crohn's in dogs. It's really just inflammatory bowel disease right. um, and quite a problem in cats as well and really linked to small cell lymphoma of the bowel in cats. Right. Um, so in dogs, they have been using fecal microbial transplant um, technology, not, not really technology, basically giving poo in a capsule yep. orally um, to dogs with IBD and dogs with particular bacterial overgrowth, so Clostridium, again, same as people, Clostridium difficile. Yeah, so um, it's it's actually... For how long? For how long? I'm not sure. Is this actually. something that moved across from veterinary science into the mainstream? Ah, human right. Thing? So historically, again, no, I don't think so. Right. It, it probably has been moving in parallel. Right. Um, but certainly, it is. It has been done for quite a few years in integrative vets, mm. and I do know that some conventional vets are starting to do it as well, right. which is so exciting. So oh, they, yeah. they basically have a pool of dogs that they know have healthy feces, and you can do a stool analysis to make sure that they don't have any parasites or bacterial overgrowth um, or viruses in their stool, and they will save the stool and 
give the owner a crapsule. capsules. A crapsule, <laughs> yeah. yeah, basically, um, to um, give it orally. And then I know that they're also doing rectal um, sort of colonoscopy Type, Implants, um, enemas. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, so that's really exciting. Um, there's just if you if you talk about where the evidence is leading, there there is quite a lot of research being done with the importance of the microbiome um, for our veterinary patients, which is really exciting because it's a huge area of interest for me personally. Yeah. Obviously, we've said ad nauseum, pets can't communicate with us with speech. Mm. What signs do we look for? that might indicate that they're deficient in something and that they might benefit from supplementation? Okay. So, again, I think it depends on the condition. You, you can do some um, analyses now. So vitamin D um, testing is becoming a bit more available. Um, you can look for certain nutritional deficiencies um, in um, using certain labs, um, so you, you can you can see that um, objective data. Um, pica is a behaviour which can often be linked to mineral deficiencies, and pica means um, basically eating some sort of foreign material, be that rocks or soil, or yep. or licking certain sub certain surfaces. And you can see that in horses and in cows um, and in dogs. And cats as well. Okay. Um, so that could be a behaviour, but again, I, I guess to substantiate it, you would need to see the um, the objective data and analyses of their blood mineral levels to make sure that's the, the case. Um, in terms of deficiencies, um, you will quite often see certain deficiencies related to certain conditions, and you you know that they will likely need supplementation. So, for example, in IBD cases, um, most of these patients will be deficient in B12, so they should receive B12 injections um, to boost their B12 levels, and yep. that's simply due to the lack of absorption in yeah. an unhealthy gut. Um, uh, other things that you might see is um, so fecal consistency, um, if they are not absorbing fat and might have deficiencies of certain fat-soluble vitamins. Um, you see a condition called steatorrhea where the, the stool is sort of um, frothy and floats to the surface, so yeah. you can you can analyse the stool in that way. Um, they're, they're an example, uh, sort of a, a few examples of, of different ways you can tell that an animal might be deficient in things. And what about particular toxicities? Are there any particular toxicities of vitamins um, with regards to, say, dogs versus cats? Um, I seem to recall one of the other couldn't handle, and it doesn't make sense to me when I think about it, but couldn't handle quite large doses of, was it vitamin A? Was it vitamin D? I can't remember. Um, so vitamin A toxicity does exist. I, I don't but that would be massive doses, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, so I don't think it's too dissimilar to people, really. Yeah. yeah. Um, certainly some cats who become really picky with their diet and um, some owners who think that they're doing the best and, and no offence to them, but they the cat might only decide that it wants to eat liver because yeah. it's really tasty and they, they, they over time will start to refuse every single food but liver. So the owner will just continue to give the cat liver and they will end up usually with vitamin A toxicity. Oh, right. Okay, yeah. gotcha. Um, in terms of different um, supplements, I I can't think of any major differences between the species off the top of my head, um, but I know that there's been some issues with um, giving hops mm. to dogs yeah. that, that can end up being um, toxic over time. So it's recommended if hops are used to only use over a matter of a few months because yeah. it can accumulate. Um, in terms of other toxicities, if we think of sort of things in the diet, um, so quite a lot of people don't actually know this, but um, garlic and onion, it's toxic. 
For both dogs and cats? Particularly for dogs. Really? Yeah. Yep. I thought like un- garlic was okay, but onions were toxic. No, or so one same or families. Other. Anything from the Allium family. Right. Yeah, so um, that's not that's a no-no. Macadamia nuts are also a no-no. Grapes. Obviously chocolate. Yep, grapes, sultanas, anything from that family. Have we found out? Avocados. What... Oh, really? Yeah, so there's a whole host of different things that you need to be quite careful about um, in terms of feeding dogs mm. home-cooked diets and giving dogs and cats leftover foods, yeah. Um, other things, so lily flowers are toxic to cats, all components of them, mm. um, even if they come into contact with the pollen. It can be severely toxic and cause acute kidney failure in cats, um, and that differs between dogs and cats. So that's a perfect example. Um, but so there, there are a few examples of, of some toxicities that are more commonly seen. There's so much to go into. <laughs> I, I mean, we, we've alluded to it. There's so many species, but but there's so much to go into it. Um, I'd love it if you'd join us on FX Medicine again sometime and yeah, we can maybe delve into some specific aspect. Yeah. Um, maybe our listeners might have something that they'd really like answered. Yep. If, you, if that's the case, please contact us on um, Twitter, Facebook, you know, the usual platforms of social media and, of course, our fxmedicine.com.au website or email at info at fxmedicine.com.au. Dr Sarah Howard, thank you so much for taking us through what is the tip of the iceberg. Um, today and like really exploding some myths but giving us some responsible direction um, for where integrated veterinary science and care can help our pets, our loved ones. Thanks so much for joining us on FX Medicine today. Oh, an absolute pleasure. I was very happy to be asked to join the podcast and we'll definitely be looking forward to the next episode. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Join Dr Sarah Howard and her guests as they dive into the world of integrative veterinary medicine on the new Pure Animal podcast. Dr Howard interviews practitioners, researchers and industry professionals at the forefront of their fields with the aim of advancing pet well-being. Search for Pure Animal in your favourite podcast app.